0: The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, welcome to today's episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. This is a special episode recorded on October 6th, at Capital Weekly's conference on California's mental health crisis. This is panel two, moderated by Sigrid Bothan, who is a longtime journalist who has recently written quite a bit on this subject for Capital Weekly. Uh, the title of this particular panel is Compelling Treatment, Balancing Individual Rights and Grave Disability. I also want to mention our sponsors, uh, Capital Weekly Hosts these conferences quarterly and we only really can do this with the support of our sponsors and our gold sponsor for this event is Kaiser Permanente and we also have the Tribal Alliance Sovereign Indian Nations, also a sponsor of the regular Capital Weekly Podcast Uh, and then also the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, the Associated Builders and Contractors of Northern California California Building Industry Association, Lucas Public Affairs, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, Pandora, and the California Professional Firefighters. Uh, Thank you, and I'll hand this over to Sigrid.
1: Thanks very much, Tim. Um, As you said, I've uh, covered mental health and related issues as a journalist for many years, recently in a continuing series of articles for Capital Weekly. One of the most difficult dilemmas facing the mental health system of care in California hinges on what is often referred to as involuntary treatment, a term which prompts intense reaction based in large measure on institutional abuses in California's vast system of state mental hospitals, which were largely closed in the 1960s and 70s, following multiple investigations and highly critical media coverage, including mine. When I covered terrible conditions in the state hospitals for the Sacramento Bee in a series of investigative articles um, that were nominated for a Pulitzer, mentally ill and developmentally disabled people were routinely held often in wretched conditions, over-medicated and against their will for years, lifetimes even, with little recourse or oversight. Today, the only remaining state hospitals primarily house those deemed criminally insane by the courts. But the community care that was ostensibly to replace the hospitals never materialized. And we see the results today in vast numbers of mentally ill people, homeless on the streets, incarcerated, cycling through hospital emergency rooms, injured and killed. It's an intractable, increasingly visible issue that is the focus of considerable, often bipartisan legislation, and fortunately, additional funding, compelling treatment, balancing individual rights and grave disability. The title of this panel remains one of the most difficult of balancing acts, which members of this remarkable panel know all too well. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'd like to briefly introduce the panelists, and you can see their bios in the conference program on the Capital Weekly website, and ask each to give us a brief, perhaps five-minute introduction overview of their experience And then we'll continue with further discussion. There will be opportunity for questions from viewers toward the end of the panel in the online chat Q&A section of your Zoom screen. And since we do things alphabetically, I'll start. Uh, Bridget Dean is the director of the Department of Community Response in Sacramento, which provides alternative citywide response to reduce police and fire calls for a wide range of incidents including homelessness, mental health, school response, youth and family crisis, and substance abuse issues. Bridget earned her master's and bachelor's degrees in social work at California State University, Sacramento, and is a licensed clinical social worker. She has served as an administrator and counselor in public schools and established the first police social services unit in the region in the Sacramento Police Department. Her experience gives her a unique lens in creating an alternative response to address social issues that are non-criminal and may not need law enforcement involved. Santa Clara County Superior Court Judge Stephen Manley has served as a judge for over 30 years. Currently, as the supervising judge of all felony and misdemeanor mental health cases in the criminal division of the court, he developed and personally presides over a number of treatment court programs that include thousands of, have included thousands of offenders who participated and participate in treatment and rehabilitation services while on probation or parole, have been found incompetent to stand trial, or are mentally ill, mentally challenged, and substance abusers. He established one of the first mental health courts in the nation, the first in California in 1998, designed to break the tragic pattern for people with mental illness whose mental illness underlies their crimes, too often landing them repeatedly in jails and prisons ill-equipped to help them. Judge Manley's behavioral health court is widely described as the gold standard for mental health courts nationally. His unusual and highly successful approach to keeping mentally ill defendants, he calls them clients, out of the criminal justice system has been adopted throughout California and in other states. He has received many local, state and national awards from criminal justice and mental health groups. Al Roulette is the CEO of Turning Point Community Programs, overseeing more than 40 programs to address mental health, homelessness, and substance abuse issues in Northern California. He has been with the agency for 40 years, starting as a rehabilitation counselor, rising through the ranks to the top position in 2016. He is a licensed clinical social worker with master's degrees in social work, business, and health services management. He has served on multiple community and statewide boards, including the Elk Grove Unified School District Board of Education, the U.S. Psychiatric Rehabilitation Association, and the Child Abuse Prevention Center. He teaches in the UC Davis Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Brian Stetton is the Policy Director for the National Treatment Advocacy Center based in Arlington, Virginia. As an Assistant New York State Attorney General, Brian was instrumental in drafting and Kendra's Law, conceiving and drafting Kendra's Law, landmark 1999 legislation establishing assisted outpatient treatment, AOT, in New York, similar to Laura's Law in California, which was passed three years later. Brian later served as special counsel to the New York State Commissioner of Criminal Justice Services and counsel to the Health Committee of the New York Assembly. Since joining the Treatment Advocacy Center in 2009, he has worked with state legislators and policymakers across the US to improve mental health commitment laws and establish AOT programs. He is a graduate of the City College of New York and the University of Texas School of Law. Now, if each of the panelists could give us a five minute introduction overview of your programs and your thoughts on treatment, intervention, maintaining the balance between individual rights and serious mental disability. Bridget, we'll start with you. And then we'll go to discussion.
2: Thank you very much. So my name is Bridget Dean. I am the director of the Department of Community Response in the city of Sacramento. The department was established a little over one year ago by the city uh, as an alternative response model working collaboratively with our police and fire departments to reduce those calls for service and contact when not necessary or related to criminal behavior the goal of the department has been to find other options for individuals who are in mental health crisis, who may be experiencing um, uh, needs that are based simply on reconnection to services, medications, or getting back to providers. And our goal is to create another avenue for individuals to stay stabilized, to remain stabilized, but to also get them into the hands of the appropriate experts uh, when they are starting to have their crisis. And I think one of the things that we've established here in the city is that we have an opportunity to create another pathway for people to be served and treated without the justice system necessarily involved. However, I will say that we collaboratively work with law enforcement and fire, and when it does need to be a co-response, it is, and and we will continue to move forward with a social work response. DCR is staffed by social workers. We have teams that go out uh, into the city via a 311 system, which dispatches us currently to those calls for service.
1: Thank you. Judge Manley, can you? Sure.
3: Thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm a Superior Court judge in Santa Clara County. And as uh, was referenced, I have a very large program see anywhere uh, there are two judges one of the judge works with me and we see between 1500 and 2200 people a year in the criminal justice system at all levels um starting at arraignment uh, actually this morning that's what i was doing um hearing uh referrals of individuals who are mentally ill and uh before they even get to their first court hearing when they would be discussing the merits of the case with their attorney and the district attorney. And uh, they are released on pretrial supervision. And what we do is try to place them immediately into treatment. I think what is unique about our program is that not only do we have the judges working directly with the clients every day, five days a week, but we have an entire suite of offices on the same floor as the courtrooms where we have psychiatrists, substance abuse uh, counselors, um, clinicians, housing specialists, and benefit navigators. All of these individuals are critically necessary to make this uh, program work. Talking a little bit about um, compelling treatment, uh, give you my view. Um, I don't think, I, I do not like the, continued use of the word coerced, um, mandatory, involuntary, I use the word motivating. I think what this is all about is engaging people in treatment, who many of whom don't want to be in it, re-engaging them when they drop out of it, and keeping them in treatment. This is an incredible task, and it requires more than just a judge. It takes a whole team of people working with the individuals out in the community, whether it's in the courthouse or at the treatment program or their residence. Uh, It doesn't matter. Uh, This issue of compelling treatment, I want to give you my take on it, which is very simple. And that is my idea and my job, as I view it, is to get you interested in participating in treatment. I will do whatever I can to motivate you as an individual to do something you really don't want to do. I understand it, but I also know you're very sick. You have incredible challenges out in the world and you simply don't make it in the community. You come back to the jail again and again, or you go to the state hospital. Um, What I want to point out today, which I really like everyone to hopefully understand uh, the challenge we face. You know, for a judge to order someone to be involuntarily medicated, for example, that is an order we make in the courts. That's nothing more than a piece of paper and words out of a judge's mouth. It doesn't really take you anywhere, in my view. Because what I see day after day, year after year, people come back from the state hospital where they've been involuntarily medicated for months and months and months, and they go right back to the behavior before they were in the state hospital. They come to me for what we call a soft landing. We try to place them in treatment, but we face the very same challenges as we do if you were brand new to us. So all of that effort, and I'm not criticizing the state hospital, they do a wonderful job given their very limited resources and their horrendous wait list of 1,700 individuals. They're trying to change that system. And that's what I advocate. we got to rethink and change this entire system. we got to understand that mental illness is a relapsing, decompensating condition. That it never stays where you think it is or where it should be or you think it should be. And if you don't encourage people day after day, meet them where they are instead of trying to make them meet you where you are regarding their illness, can you ever bring them to a position where they're going to make a start at staying in treatment on their own, absent orders by judges or being forced to do anything? The process is what counts. And engagement is really the critical issue when it comes to that process, building trust with the individual, moving them forward. I want to cover two other things. To me, the critical question is this. It's not what is the definition of grave disability? What is the definition of incapable of caring for your own self? I do not care what definition you use, how many times you change it. It is not the, we don't do, I don't believe in blame. I don't blame the doctors, the experts, those who diagnose people. Here's the problem. We don't have any resources in the community. We are always attacking this problem from a legislative statutory basis where we always say, Based on res- existing resources, whatever resources you have in the county, you can use. Um, and I think that is all wrong. We do not have enough treatment at the higher levels crisis residential, lock facilities, fact programs, good case management, a good workforce that we're investing money in. We don't have that. And therefore, the default is to put everyone in the jail. Um, and that's exactly what happens. We we do a survey of people leaving our jail. And I can just tell you that 43% identify that they have a mental health problem. 33% put it at their highest need when they leave jail other than housing and benefits. Finally, in closing... Another question that I raised for you, because I really think it's important, the Mental Health Services Act needs to be revisited by the voters and given an opportunity to make it work better. There are millions and millions of dollars sitting in counties that do not go to this vitally important population of criminal justice individuals who are mentally ill. And
1: I hope that is revisited. Thank you. Thank you you very much, and it's appropriate we'll now go to Al Roulette, who is uh, with one of the most, uh, the longest, long-time community services program. I mean, I remember when you started as a small clinic in Sacramento, and now you have a vast number of of programs throughout Northern California. Tell us a little more about your work. Thank you.
4: Well, thank you. Uh, I'm Al Roulette again, and I'm the Chief Executive Officer for Turning Point Community Programs. And by training, I am a clinician first. And so in keeping with what the two speakers ahead of me have said, understand the importance of engagement, and not just one time, not just two times, but multiple times, and engagement with the people that we're privileged to serve. And that underscores the turning point approach. That is, whatever it takes, always trying to uh, affirm resilience recovery from the symptoms associated with the psychiatric disability and relationships, because we want people to not be dependent on specialty mental health services for the totality of their life, but really engage their support system. Turning Point offers a variety of outpatient behavioral health or mental health services for the entire age span in 10 Northern and Central California counties. Specifically, as it relates to what's being said, we provide assisted outpatient treatment or AOT or Laura's Law treatment, our treatment as a result of the passage of Laura's Law. Turning Point was the first organization in the state of California to begin providing these services in Nevada County. And again, just in terms of the definition, AOT is a civil process and as such the approach is to engage and it's already been emphasized I'll emphasize it one more time to engage the individual that we're privileged to serve without penalty but rather to support them appropriately with connecting to the mental health service that they need in the same way we try to engage a person that goes into an emergency room that's complaining of chest pains we engage the person that is that is involved in the civil process of aot in receiving the mental health services that the civil process has identified that they receive it is different than conservatorship in that engagement is an important component whereas with conservatorship Engagement is often minimized. And again, in my opinion, conservatorship is far more intrusive of a process. By way of an illustration, when we first started providing AOT services in Nevada County, we had an individual that was assigned to work with us. That individual said after the judge's order, no to mental health treatment. We tried to engage the individual not once, not twice, but 38 And after the 38th time, the person said, I am tired of you coming out to engage me. Yes, I'll do it if you will stop trying to engage me. Later, when that person was working for us and and served as an ambassador for AOT treatment, they talked about that kind of unconditional engagement over time. AOT then folds right into assertive community treatment. Assertive community treatment is a form of treatment on an outpatient basis that includes things like medication support, 24-hour support for crisis services, housing support, the three examples of resources that were talked about and discussed earlier by Judge Manley and by Bridget Dean, an essential component in order to help people be successful, Because, as was illustrated and via my own experience, when we were working to help people who were in the hospital or or incarcerated move back into communities that they desire to be successful in, what we realized is very quickly, you don't learn the skills that extend your tenure in the community in the hospital. You get well in the hospital, but you learn the skills in the community and you need relationships with people in the community that will help you as well as specialty mental health support that will support you over time, sometimes months, sometimes years for individuals who on an ongoing basis are experiencing the symptoms associated with psychiatric illness that has resulted in them having interactions with law enforcement, and then going before the judge over an extended period until you no longer are dependent upon specialty mental health services. And for many of the people that we're privileged to serve, part of the evidence associated with people being more well is that they serve as ambassadors and peers for others to really demystify Some of the components of AOT, which is often misunderstood as a coercive process, which again was illustrated very articulately by the judge, it is not coercive. It is effective engagement provided in the context of assertive community treatment. Turning Point today operates two of those programs, one in Nevada County, that is the gold standard for the state, and another in Placer County. And each of those programs include all the features associated with 24-hour, seven-day-a-week support in the community so people can live and be successful and not be dependent on specialty mental health service for the rest of their lives.
1: Thank you very much. And transitioning now to Brian Stetton, who has also been very involved in AOT programs and 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 Laura's Law and uh, uh, Kendra's Law in New York. Brian.
5: Sure. Thank you so much, Sigrid. So great to be with this uh, amazing panel and and, uh, all of you listening today. Um, I'm also going to talk a a little bit about AOT this morning. I'm going to speak about it less from an on-the-ground level, the the way Al has, and and more from kind of a political advocacy standpoint, because that's really been the focus of of my work uh, for many years now. Just to tell you a little about uh, my organization, the Treatment Advocacy Center, Uh, we are a national nonprofit group Um, as Sacred said, based in in the Washington, D.C. area, um, that works around the country to remove legal barriers to the treatment of severe mental illness. And at the very top of our agenda, uh, through the 23-year history of the organization, has been making this concept that you've heard so uh, so much about already today, AOT, Assisted Outpatient Treatment, a a universal tool uh, in the toolkit of every public mental health system in the United States. Uh, it's a, uh, a quest we've made a lot of progress on, uh, but still have, have quite a way to go. Um, as I think is probably clear by now, if not, I'll just give a quick summary of what AOT is. It's, it's the practice of uh, providing outpatient treatment uh, under a civil court order uh, to an individual who has a history of disengaging from that treatment when it has been offered to them uh, voluntarily in the past. And that's by no fault of the individual. It's very often just a manifestation of what many people with severe mental illness struggle with, lack of insight, sometimes called anosognosia, the inability that some people have of hanging on to an understanding, no matter how painfully obvious it may be to everyone around them, um, that they are in need of, of staying engaged with this treatment on a consistent basis. Uh, so for many years, we have advanced our mission to, to make AOT a universal practice by really focusing on changing laws by lobbying state legislatures and California's Laura's law is a great example of that. We, we were very instrumental in uh, pushing the legislature to the point where this was enacted in 2002 uh, working with our, our grassroots partners across California and um, Laura's law I think is fair to say is uh, also a pretty good example of why we've really shifted our focus a lot in recent years. You know, so much of that legislative work um, resulted in frustration, even after laws were passed with great fanfare in that um, legislation was p- placed on the books and created lots of hope for people that this was going to lead to the creation of programs on the ground. And then years would go by without any actual AOT programs being put in place. Um and if you look at the history of Laura's Law, it was other than the program Al mentioned, the wonderful program in Nevada County, uh, which was the home base of the, the, the home of, of the incident, the tragic incident that led to the naming of, of this law after the a young girl named Laura Wilcox, uh, Nevada County, California, was the only AOT program we had uh, for about 10 years. Um, And there are various reasons for that we can go into. But uh, the the floodgates have since opened. We now have gotten to the point where most of the populous counties across California do have AOT programs in place. Um, But even there, there has been some frustration in the way many of those programs have been implemented and some of the policy choices that have been made. We can get into that in our discussion a little bit more. But uh, we have really in reaction to that tried to shift our focus as an organization. And today are really much more engaged with local mental health systems, trying to help them provide technical assistance to actually get these AOT programs, not only off the ground, but, but living up to their, their full potential. Uh, just quickly, by way of my own background um, in this area, I, uh, I think as Sigrid mentioned in my introduction, was an assistant attorney general in New York in, in uh, 1999, When we had a terrible tragedy in the subway there, a young woman was pushed into the path of an oncoming subway train. Um, This led to a lot of hand wringing about what was uh, dysfunctional in the New York state public mental health system that allowed someone um, to commit this act who was very well known to the mental health system, um, had been really kind of through this revolving door that we've described already uh, many times and was kind of roaming the streets of New York City shamefully with no real support or, or supervision. Uh, and so at that time, I was asked by my boss, the attorney general, to develop a legislative proposal uh, in response to, to this incident um, that would allow the, the young woman who died in New York, Kendra Webdale, to have not uh, died in vain. And I, of course, knew absolutely nothing about public mental health at the time. I was very fortunate to connect with the organization I, I work for today, the Treatment Advocacy Center, who gave me kind of a crash course on uh this concept of AOT and we developed this proposal, which has not only really changed the public mental health system profoundly in New York, but served as the model uh, for so many other states, including California that have uh, passed similar laws since. So uh, I think I will just leave it there and really look forward to getting into a further discussion of what I think could really be done uh, more effectively in California to, to, to help this concept of AOT live up to its promise.
1: Thank you very much. We're already um, about halfway through our panels. So we're gonna have to move quickly and and keep our responses short. Um, Considerable funds are spent, and I want you to feel free to interact among each other. Um, Considerable funds are spent on mental health care in California through the Mental Health Services Act, the so-called Millionaire's Tax, passed by voters as Prop 63 in 2004 through the governor's budget which in recent years has included significant funding to address homelessness, mental health, and substance abuse. But still, there is a serious lack of psychiatric inpatient facilities or beds and a growing crisis in homelessness, incarceration, and the revolving door of emergency room treatment. We're also seeing a a massive national conversation on the use of law enforcement to respond to mental health calls. With many cities opting to restructure funding for out law enforcement to include mental health clinicians, social workers on response teams, and Sacramento has one of the prime programs in that area. There are other, some of the other cities have had programs in place for years. What role should law enforcement play in these restructured programs? And we'll start with Bridget if you could un- unmute, and um, I'd like others to participate in this dialogue as well. And we need to keep our answers brief. Thank you. And I'll keep keep my questions brief too, or try to.
2: (laughs) Great. Thanks. As a clinician myself who has worked in law enforcement and overseen sworn units who have responded to mental health over several years, the key uh, piece that law enforcement currently has, and I think it's uh, what we are talking about with Uh, Other panelists today, we've all shared is currently in state of California, the primary access point to services or 5150 holds or other supports comes via a law enforcement contact. And I think that's one of the major things we need to really shift. It's one of the goals of DCR in the city of Sacramento is to remove law enforcement from that piece of it unless absolutely necessary. Alternative programs are an alternative, but they need to work collaboratively to make sure that all the expertise responding to somebody in crisis is available at the moment when the person is experiencing that crisis right then. And often that means law enforcement is responding for safety mitigation. But once safety is done, they need to move on to their next piece and leave it back to the mental health experts. So I think the real role in law enforcement with mental health is not to remove them from the process. I think to the judge's point, the system is very much a part of the process, but where do we negate the contact to begin with, with the justice system? You know, I'm a firm believer having worked in schools and in various um, populations in my career, that there is a pipeline that we can disrupt if we are doing it correctly and we are putting the right skill sets first. And so the collaborative response should be safety mitigated. The experts should be the mental health clinicians and others responding. That's where law enforcement's role should be.
1: you know, there's a serious lack of psychiatric inpatient beds and or facilities um, when you do intervene at whatever level you are able to intervene. Al, perhaps you could speak to the lack of facilities. Uh, and the governor had a press conference, I think it was last week, at a board and care home to annou- in Los Angeles to announce his budget package, which is significant. Um, to put more money into facilities and programs. And I know you've been doing that for a long time, Al. Um, could you speak to that
4: now? Well, the governor's presence at a board and care home is symbolic of the challenge that is going on in the state of California. We do not have uh, an array of housing options that are available for people with uh, uh, once the stressors or the crisis has been mitigated, as indicated by Bridget, what options are available. So, for example, in Sacramento County, we do operate at one of the, if not if today, not only the only mental health urgent care clinic in Sacramento. And so what should be available to people who are not well or experiencing psychiatric distress is the same response that is available to me if I'm experiencing a general health crisis, a clinic that is designed to mitigate the dilemmas and symptoms associated with the mental health crisis and not just place the onus of that on law enforcement. I concur we need to absolutely have clinicians and law enforcement working together I think that law enforcement needs to be trained in, and get ongoing training in mitigating the crisis. But once the immediate life-threatening crisis is mitigated, allowing or providing that person with the resource that they can transition to, i.e., as the governor was at, a board and care facility, which they are going away at an alarming rate in the state of California because the funding associated with sustaining those operations, adult residential facilities in the state of California, it is, it mirrors the housing crisis that we are having. It just, there are just not the resources to sustain that. And in those facilities, the individuals who may be experiencing distress that prohibits them from being being able to manage their, their medications or manage their areas of daily living, those get mitigated such that the behavior health treatment that might be coupled with the housing is supportive and provided in the environment in which the person resides so that they don't have to live that there forever. However, when that's gone, then you then end up looking at people who are at greater risk, who need more psychiatric Uh, hospitalization or beds or resources available to them because they're at greater risk because there isn't anything in the community. And again, I'm linking it right back to what the judge said. We need those resources in the community where people want to live because, in conclusion, what I've discovered, what we've discovered is when people are motivated to live in a community without stigma, without the stigma associated with behavioral health treatment, and when they have a supportive environment around them that includes the mitigations of the social determinants of health, all those other risk factors that are often associated with people who are poor, who are required to, are required to live in abortion care. Once we can mitigate that, people can be successful and very successful which with managing their psychiatric illness.
1: Um, We've heard a lot of discussion here about the state mental hospitals uh, which were largely eliminated in the 60s and 70s, leaving a few hospitals designated for those deemed criminally insane. Judge Manley, I know this is a field that you're very involved in, and um, hearing a lot of discussion, uh, Senator Susan Eggman, who is this keynote following this panel, um, has talked about visiting all of the state hospitals and repurposing the hospitals um what would your thoughts be on on the state hospital situation there's a terrible backlog right now for people awaiting mental competency hearings um how would you suggest that be improved or addressed well i think it is a
3: very serious problem but it's been a problem for many years And it's reached the point, as I mentioned earlier, I believe there are 1,700 individuals sitting in jails waiting to be transported to the state hospital who are not being transported. I think that to me, the answer is really uh, pretty straightforward. We need to eliminate state hospitals and place people in the communities they came from in appropriate treatment. Uh, we have a diversion program that the legislature approved um, that I utilize all the time. And we have diverted, uh, I would say, close to one half of the people that we would normally send to the state hospital. And we've diverted them successful. Uh, and I think what, what is needed here is to invest funding, as has been mentioned by my co-panelists, in community treatment resources at these higher levels of care that may be needed. For example, simply crisis residential treatment, which is not locked, is one that we need funding for, and we need to build it out. There are not enough slots, not enough beds. People remain in our jails. It's it's inexcusable that we permit this to go on year after year, and so I am hopeful that there will be a dramatic shift in thinking not to create some kind of super state hospital to take care of everyone, but to address this issue where the people live in the community, because when all is said and done, they come back to our community, they are on the street and homeless again, we don't need that, we don't want that, All your resources, housing, we haven't talked at all about substance abuse, a very critical challenge for mentally ill individuals. All those resources are at the local level, and unless they are built out, you are simply going to spin people from the state back to the counties, back to the state. And it makes no sense to me, totally oppose it. I I believe the competency should be restored in the community. I think it can be done safely. There are some individuals who must be incarcerated in a lock facility, I understand that. But there are hundreds and thousands of individuals who can be safely returned to the community and restored to competency. More importantly to me is that they are restored to believing in themselves working on their challenges of mental illness, which are not going to go away no matter what we do. They're going to stay there for nearly all people. But unless we are working with them at the community level and keeping things down there, we're just going to go back and forth between the state and the counties. And I think that's all wrong. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Can I add to that? yes yes please and also talk about the the connect the inter intersection between the civil and the criminal courts in terms of laura's law yeah, and so, yeah that's exactly where
5: i was going with that Sigrid. thank you good, um good. I could not agree more with with judge manley as to you know what what needs to happen with respect to people that are clogging the state hospitals today but i really think it's important to keep in mind and you know an aspect of this tragedy that often gets overlooked is that we've really perverted the purpose for which the state hospital system was created, right? The fact that we have all these people who are uh, there for the simple purpose of restoring them to competency so that they can then be prosecuted, right? As opposed to treating people so that they can achieve uh, recovery and stability and get back to the the lives of their choosing um, is really just terribly sad and has, has made things so much harder for people who do need that bed for the purpose of a civil commitment not because they're in trouble, right, but because they are presently a danger to themselves or others and, 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 and uh, need help. Um, so, you know, if we were to do what, what Judge Manley is suggesting, um, I don't ne- think necessarily it should mean we, we would need less um, hospital beds. They don't necessarily have to be in big state hospitals far from where people live, right? It could be done in smaller facilities closer to home. But I think there will remain uh, a great need for uh, an adequate number of inpatient beds, but those beds could then be used for people who are now getting out of the hospital too soon because there's no place to put them. People who need some time in a hospital to become stable, to be restored to where they can then go back in the community, perhaps with the help of AOT and get back to their
1: lives. Uh, We do have some questions, so um, let's, we'll try Uh, to get to those in a few. Did you... Judge Manley, you had something. I was just going to add,
3: um, and I, the governor has on his desk, I believe, SB 317, and I do not know whether it's been signed or not. But that that particular bill um, would change the statutes in terms of misdemeanors, uh, misdemeanants who are found incompetent to stand trial. The, uh, at the present time, the judges have very few alternatives, if anything. But under this new law, uh, if it's amended, uh, the judges will be able to place the individuals in AOT, and that will bring together, to in my mind, the criminal uh, process and the civil process in, in you know, in a, in a challenging way. But I think it's. Uh, you know, it's it's going in the direction of providing AOT level of treatment to a lot of individuals who presently get not Thank you.
5: And I'm in favor of that, but I do think it, there has to be a note of caution in how that that's applied, right? Because we don't want um, AOT to follow the same pattern that we've seen. What I would just describe as what's happened. Uh, to inpatient treatment, where lots exactly. you know, that are available are all being taken up by people who are in, in trouble in the criminal justice system, such I that agree. you have to commit a crime to get help.
1: One thing we haven't really discussed, we've talked about it around the edges, is Lannerman Petra Short, which was passed in 1967 and has li- guided mental health care in California or lack thereof uh, for more than 50 years. Many people say LPS needs to be changed, the Mental Health Services Act, which was passed by the voters later in uh, 2004, um, that both of them need to be updated. And there's various legislation to do that that's kind of, you know, moving around the edges on the issue of grave disability, uh, because it's, you know, under the LPS system, it's very difficult. You have someone in uh, an LPS hold, a 5150, as it's called, and they're cycled right back out onto the street more often than not. Um, how does Lannerman Petra Short need to be changed? And uh, Susan Eggman is talking about a possible ballot measure. Maybe she'll talk about that more, um, taking it directly to the voters to update both LPS and the Mental Health Services Act. Uh, Any thoughts on that? And then I guess we need to go to to some questions. We could go for a long time here and I really appreciate all your input. Does anyone want to start on LPS? Lannerman Petra Short, Brian? You know, the,
5: the broader aspects of, of of the need for LPS reform is not something I'm well versed on enough that I would want to go first on that. I have specific areas related to uh, inpatient and outpatient commitment that I think mm-hmm. there's some 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 room to improve. But uh, right. given the breadth Man- of the question, Judge Manley. Well, you know, I,
3: it's it's not for me to <clears throat> suggest what the legislature should should do. They are they are a separate branch of government. But you know, what I want to 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 bring up is is this issue that um, I find is is so incredibly challenging. When when the legislature changes definitions, as I said earlier, you can broaden the definition of grave disability. You can change the structure. But the point is, what good does that do when you have to make the decision at the local level? In other words, in my county, individuals are released from jail, arrested, taken by the officer to emergency psychiatric services at a hospital. There are no beds in the hospital for this individual. That individual then is released in two hours to the streets. And now what do the law enforcement officers do? My whole view on this is. It's not because the doctors want people to be in the streets or the people that do the 5150 evaluations do not care about the individual. We have to find the resources so that there's meaningful alternatives for those who come in contact with individuals and are responsible for making decisions, such as whether they're gravely disabled or not. Uh, Because if we don't, then making that decision, what what good does it do? If the person really is gravely disabled and you have nowhere to provide that treatment, you are doing a disservice to the person and and the law really needs to be reexamined.
5: Yeah, uh, you know, the way I like to think of it is that fixing the law and having the law say what it ought to is a necessary but not sufficient uh, step towards having a functional mental health system. Uh, you know, the, the, as you say, if you don't have a bed to put anybody in, the, the system is going to find ways to triage out of desperation, regardless right. of what the law says. That's not to say we shouldn't make the law as good as
1: we can. Um, we Secret, do have a if I may. Yes, please.
4: Just regarding this subject, uh, I want to, again, uh, agree with the judge. And in terms of the interpretation of grave disability, danger to self or danger to others. For the individuals who are the recipients of treatment and the individuals who are making those interpretations, if you look at all the counties throughout the state of California, it is not applied the same way. And that, certainly from a perspective of the patient, the individual receiving the service is a problem. And not understanding and not, not appreciating and not having a consistent application of what does constitute grave disability as a result of a psychiatric illness in a Northern California county versus a Southern California county. And those differences create challenges for people in terms of treatment. We get to experience that because we provide treatment in multiple counties and see that the application is not the same. That is one area where certainly we need some more
2: And then Sigrid, I just want to throw in one other item on that. We're back to the uh, the discussion I think we're all sharing on this panel is the disparity between access to services. I too have worked in multiple counties, apples to oranges in the way we would respond to mental health crisis, even whether it's law enforcement or as a clinician, my access points and my doors, but we still have this... Um, The situation of the community is where all of the services and our supports need to be based. We need to maintain people in the community that they come from, that their providers uh, speak their language, understand their culture and look like them. And I think until we start addressing the gap that is available to some folks who are in crisis versus others, we're going to continue to have the revolving door because we also have to acknowledge the people who are coming into the justice system are often they're not white And we have to talk about where are the disparities and who is being served and how they are getting that access and who is getting the bed. Because that is one area that we are consistently failing in in the state, is we are not serving everybody equitably.
1: Problem for a very, very, very long time. It's endemic, systemic, and needs to be addressed. We have a question going back to the board and care facilities, which Al mentioned are, are sort of disappearing because they can't afford Uh, the housing costs, um, particularly in urban areas. Um, The governor's budget is supposed to be providing some funding, more funding for that. We'll we'll see what happens with that. Um, But this question is uh, about long delays in certification by community care licensing or the Department of Healthcare Services. How could the state assist in shortening the time it takes to certify Does anyone wanna take that particular question on?
4: Well, our experience is we operate four crisis residential programs, as the judge has indicated, an important part of the overall mental health delivery system that come under this, this body for jurisdiction and licensure. And there is a process. And at times, the process is protracted. In a crisis, and I'll give you an example, covid there's a crisis that affected all of us. We shifted service delivery and how we provided service so we could continue to be effective. There is a need for some transformation in this state body that regulates these facilities. And that is, should be a part of the LPS overview because if it takes over a year or longer and if the standards or the requirements are antiquated antiquated excuse me then we should shift them to meet today's realities because today's realities in housing in California are not the same as they were 40 years ago when I got started and that hasn't happened sigrid so people who are looking at possibly opening these facilities They look at the rate of reimbursement and immediately say, no, it's not a sustainable model. Given all of the regulatory requirements, given all of the risk that I have to mitigate, it is not a sustainable model. And so we don't have enough individuals who are even incentivized enough to consider providing the kind of uh, adult residential facility treatment or aborting care treatment that we need for the people that we're privileged to serve in the communities they want to live in.
1: We've also had a few questions on um, conservatorships. And of course, there's been a lot of discussion of conservatorships and some confusion uh, because of the the, uh, Britney Spears case, which has gotten a lot of media attention. There is obviously a difference between a probate conservatorship and a mental health conservatorship. How do those laws need to be changed and or perhaps the administration of them, people waiting for care, lack of follow-up care? That was a big criticism of the state auditor, that there was a lack of follow-up care for people getting out of hospitals, people who under conservatorships, uh, long waiting lists and so forth. Does, can someone speak to the issue of conservatorships, Brian? Is th- that in your
5: field? Um. Not not really. I think there are probably other members of the panel who, who could speak on, on it. Better than I could. Judge
3: Manley. Well, yes, I mean, <laughs> we need a total reform of, of, of this of conservative So You know, to me, the and that and that is probably, probably because I work in the criminal justice area. But I, I just find it um, there's no answer I can come up with. No one can give me an answer to explain the fact that we have individuals sitting in our jail who are so sick, so symptomatic, feces on the wall, will not move and and yet no conservatorships take place there. And and I, I go back to where I started. It's where are we going to place them? That is what I'm always told judge. We don't have anywhere. You know, we, we can't, you know, you have to, you got to work with them where they are. And I, well, but how can you work with people who are so sick? And I, I I would hazard a guess that if we we looked at jails throughout the state, we would find this problem in many other counties than mine. And it is, it, it goes, you know, we need just a fundamental change here. You cannot let people just sit in a jail cell and leave them there and ignore them uh, week after week, month after month, because you don't know what to do with them. I mean, that to me is the greatest miscarriage of justice that we presently have in the system. And one of the bottom line issues there is you there are no conservatorships granted for individuals who are in the criminal justice system. They're just not enough. They don't even begin to to touch
1: the problem. Well, why are there not conservatorships granted in the criminal justice system, and how can that because be resolved? Of the, well, part of it is
3: the procedural, the way they can who can bring them, who can put push. Can a can a judge order it? No, uh, I mean you you know this this is a system that to me in, should be focused on helping people, and instead we put up so many barriers. So that that if, uh, you know, that there may be, my jail may request a conservatorship and get nowhere. You know, that's that's where we are today. But it doesn't come down to the jail, the, you know, we don't have a good conservator, public guardian. Or, no, that's not the issue. These are all hardworking, dedicated people. We don't have the resources. And so I, I, to me, to change all these things without cons- ignoring the fact <laughs> that you can, you, can, you can have the perfect conservatorship program system, but if you don't have a place to place the individuals that will lead them to return to the community, to step down, then then you're not going
1: anywhere except locking people up. And that's, that's all wrong. Yeah. There seems to be widespread agreement that incarceration is not the answer here and that we don't have a system of care since the state hospitals were closed and nobody wants to go back to that. But I do see a change in attitudes, public perceptions. And do you think that's going to lead, and we'll make this our last question, to significant change throughout, uh, throughout California, throughout the country? Um, have you seen public attitudes change
5: uh, you know, I certainly have with respect to AOT, and it's not so much public attitude, but it's the kind of uh, stiff resistance that we often faced when proposing this program, either you know through legislation or or on the local level. Um, people often would have a kind of a visceral, and it still it happens to some extent, but kind of a visceral, emotional negative reaction to the idea of of providing treatment to people under court order, as if that was you know somehow uh, anathema to. The philosophy of mental health recovery. And I understand that impulse, uh, but I also know it to be completely divorced from the reality of what AOT programs are like, which, you know, uh, very much like what Judge Manley discussed in his mental health court are really not about coercing or bullying people. It wouldn't work if you tried it. So I do think that as the experience of AOT has become more common, as more people have gotten to see what actual AOT programs look like, um, that parade of horribles that people sometimes conjure mentally has been replaced with the reality of it. And it has definitely dissipated a lot of the opposition we have faced before.
1: And maybe Al and uh, Bridget in conclusion, if you could, your your sense of public attitudes having worked in this field Uh, on many levels. Um, Have you seen a change in in public attitudes and a willingness to accept that this is an issue that we need to address in a coordinated, collaborative way?
4: I concur with Brian completely. And again, using data to inform individuals' perceptions about aot specifically and the notion of to borrow borrow from brian the parade of horribles and once they see the data then they visit the programs and they understand there are not coercive elements embedded in the program but this is true genuine engagement with a commitment to the individual to provide them with the resources they need to be successful in the community and not be dependent upon specialty mental health services for the rest of their lives, but be able to transition so that they can be ambassadors for others to get the care and treatment they need in the same way that people who survive a heart attack become ambassadors for other people who experience that malady and say, get your treatment, stay the course, and you can be well and continue to contribute.
1: Well, I think, uh, that says it all, and I really appreciate, deeply appreciate. I know you're all incredibly busy and do such important work. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you. Thank you. you,
5: Thank you. Be with you.
0: The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive view. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.